All right, folks, so I just published my fourth book called You Can Retire on Social Security. Just go to Amazon.com, type in my last name, S-C-A-N-D-L-E-N, Scandlin, S-C-A-N-D-L-E-N. And all my books show up there just right for you to pick and choose from. I encourage you to buy all of them, actually. And if you're, of course, if you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber, they're all free. Uh, you can get them on Audible, at least two of them. You can get two right now on Audible, which is the Tax Bomb and your Retirement and Strategic Money Planning. Both are available on Auto Audible. So if you are a uh, an Audible member, you can get them as well through there. Uh, my uh, You Can Retire on Social Security will shortly be up on Audible. We're working on that right now. Uh, if you want, to, if you do Audible and you do it through my link, which I'll put in the show notes, I do get paid. <laughs> So make sure you try to get me as rich as possible. Excellent. Um, anyway, uh, get the books online through Amazon. Kindle Unlimited is free. You get the paperbacks. Uh, I can't remember how much I charge on the paperbacks. The Kindle version for sure. And the Audible books as well. So don't forget, if you get a chance, you want some good fashion, old-fashioned reading on financial planning. Does it get any more exciting than that? Of course not. Uh, go to these websites. Uh, go to Amazon.com and type in my last name. All right. Thanks, guys. Stay tuned for the episode. Let's just repudiate the national debt. Let's just do it once and for all, and I'll share with you an article from a Murray Rothbard, one of my heroes of all time, and this is through Mises Institute at Mises.org, and for you all on the podcast, M-I-S-E-S.org, or you can go to LewRockwell.com, and you'll say, oh my goodness, they're anti-state, anti-war, pro-market, oh, it's scary, it's like anarchy, oh. Notice they're not Antifa anarchists. They're voluntarists. And that's probably the best word you can use for this. Like, just do what you want. Be your own person. Engage in voluntary transactions. The non-aggression theory or the uh, MPF, I forgot what it's called. But anyway, at the end of the day, just don't engage in violence against your neighbor. Don't engage in your country's violence against your neighbor. It's uh, funny because most, well, not most, a lot of people... Uh, from who have found their way to uh, radical libertarianism, i.e. volunteerism, because we can't use the word anarchy because anarchy uh, has this idea of, anarchy, of uh, Antifa, which absolutely is the exact opposite of anarchists. They're, com they're literally communists. That's why they wave hammer and sickle um, flags. But anyway, so we can read this either place, and we'll, I guess we'll just go to rockwell.com. Um, Lots going on at uh, both these places, and you should. I highly suggest you get on uh, YouTube, watch these guys. I highly suggest you uh, subscribe to their podcast. Just tons and tons of stuff here. Not look, you're not gonna agree with everything. I mean, my goodness. The one thing about radical libertarians is that uh, I, I still believe in America. I love. I'm a nationalist first. I love America. I love everything it stands for. By no ways do I say it's perfect. I get it. We've had issues. I, I mean, what are you going to do, man? You sit there and say, oh, my goodness, we had all like, water on the bridge. It's time to move forward and say, all right, we made mistakes. No country has ever done more than we have to rectify our mistakes. And not to acknowledge that is just as being, it's being silly. No other way around that. And I love America. I'm a nationalist, absolutely, 100% pro-U.S. In your face, Canada. But uh, I love America. And some of these guys come across as... As anti, they sound like they're anti-government, but they're really kind of crosses anti-American more than anything, in my opinion. And I, I don't like that. Now, I get what they go uh, when it comes down to it. They're saying like some of our war efforts and our war machines and stuff. I get that to some degree. 
I think they take it a little bit too far. I do. But, you know, that's the thing about a free society. You can think what you want. Just don't violate my principles and enforce your violence on me by the barrel of a firearm and put me up against the wall. All right, so let's, uh, let's read anti or the repudiating the national debt from our man Murray Rothbard, and we see a picture of old Murray right there. And uh, if you want, uh, if you want to, I'll put uh, the links to show notes. If you want to go to uh, uh, Robert Wenzel's 30-day reading list, I will lead you to become a knowledgeable libertarian. Uh, he has, I'll, I'll put the link here, but I'm just going to read it. It's easier to read um, from the Lou Rockwell. All right. In the spring of, this is from Murray Rothbard, RIP. In the spring of 1981, conservative Republicans in the House of Representatives cried. They cried because in the first flush of the Reagan revolution that was supposed to bring drastic cuts in taxes and government spending, as well as a balanced budget, they were being asked by the White House and their own leadership to vote for increase in the statutory limit on the federal public debt, which was then scraping the legal ceiling of a trillion dollars. Actually, I have to read it from here because he has it in paragraphs. All right, they cried because of all their lives they had voted against an increase in public debt, and now they're being asked by their own party and their own movement to violate their lifelong principles. The White House and its leadership assured them that this breach in principle would be their last time that's necessary for one last increase in the debt limit to give Reagan a chance to bring about a balanced budget and to begin to reduce the debt. Many of these Republicans tearfully announced that they were taking this faithful step because they deeply trusted uh, Reagan and he wouldn't let him down. Famous last words. In a sense, the Reagan handlers were right. There were no more tears, no more complaints because the principles themselves were quickly forgotten. Huh, sounds like George H.W. Bush as well. Swept into the dustbin of history. Deficit and the public debt have piled up mountainously since then and few people care. Least of all conservative Republicans. Every few years, the legal limit is raised automatically. By the end of the Reagan reign, the federal debt was $2.6 trillion. Again, remember, when Reagan took over, it was less than a trillion dollars. That's the debt, not the deficits. Now, uh, when Rothbard wrote this, I think it was in 2012 when he wrote this. Uh, no, it was in 1992 when he wrote it. 1992, excuse me, it was 2012 when this was published. In 1992 when he wrote it. Uh, the deficit, the debt, excuse me, the debt was $3.5 and rising rapidly. Now it's well, well, well above that. $22 trillion right now. And this is the rosy side of the picture because if you add in the off-budget loan guarantees and contingencies, the grand total federal debt back then was $20 trillion, Now it's about $150 trillion. Before the Reagan era, conservatives were clear about how they felt about deficits and the public debt. A balanced budget was good, and deficits in the public debt were bad, piled up by free-spending Keynesians and socialists who absurdly proclaimed that there was nothing wrong or onerous about the public debt. In the famous words of the left uh, Keynesian apostle of functional finance, kind of like, was it, it's not modern portfolio, it's modern, modern monetary theory, MMT. Uh, back then, they had functional finance, a guy named Professor Abba Lerner, and I don't know who that guy. There's nothing wrong with the public debt because we owe it to ourselves. In those days, at least, conservatives were astute enough to realize that it made an enormous amount of difference whether, slicing through the obfuscatory collective nouns, one is a member of the we, the burden taxpayer, or of the ourselves, those living off the proceeds of taxation. So remember, Professor Lerner's argument is we owe the debt to ourselves. Well, you are either, 
the the person who has to pay the bill, i.e. the burden taxpayer, or you are those living off the proceeds of that taxation. One of those two. And sometimes it can be both. Since Reagan, however, intellectual political life has gone topsy-turvy. Conservatives and allegedly free market economists have turned handsprings to find new reasons why deficits don't matter, why we should all relax and enjoy the, and enjoy the process. I remember, and I, look, I agree with this. We can grow our way out of the deficit. That's what Newt Gingrich argued. And I, you know, I, it's kind of like the Social Security. The, the, it's done now. We've lost the argument. We've lost the argument without question, which is why I'm bringing to this to you the repudiating of the national debt and why it's something we should look at for sure. Uh, perhaps the most absurd arguments of Reaganomics was that we should not worry about growing public debt because it's being matched on the federal balance sheet by an expansion of public assets. Here is a new twist on free market macroeconomics. Things are going well because the value of government assets is rising. In that case, why not have the government nationalize assets, assets outright? Reaganomics in, indeed came up with every conceivable argument for the public debt except the phrase of Abba Lerner, and I'm convinced that they did not recycle that phrase, but because it'd be difficult to sustain with a straight face, especially at a time when foreign ownership of the national debt is skyrocketing. Even apart from foreign ownership, it is far more difficult to sustain the Lerner thesis than before. In the late 1930s, when Lerner enunciated his thesis, the total federal interest payments on the public debt were $1 billion. Now they have zoomed to 200 billion. And remember, this is back in 1992 or three when he wrote it. The third largest item in the federal budget after the military and social security. And this is, look, this is 25 years ago. And after the military and social security, it was the, the interest on the public debt was the third largest. Just shows you how, in, how much has grown, how much military has grown and how much social security has grown. Put a bit of ice in my mouth. All right, hold it up. All right. To think sensibly about the public debt, we first have to go back to the first principles and consider debt in general. Put simply, a credit transaction occurs when C, the creditor, transfers a sum of money, say $1,000, to D, the debtor, in exchange for a promise that D will repay C in a year's time, the principal plus interest. That's a bond. If the agreed interest rate on the transaction is 10%, then the debtor obligates himself to pay in a year's time $1,100. This repayment completes the transaction, which is in contrast to a regular sale takes place over time. So I'm lending you money. I have 1,000, I give to you, I loan it to you. I no longer have 1,000 for which I can consume. You now have $1,000, so do whatever you want with it. A year's time, I'm going to come back, I'm going to knock on the door, and you're going to give me $1,100. That's how it works. It's that simple. Once you give me that $1,100, bucks, we're both clear. We're, our contract is done. Your obligation to me is completed, paid in full. So far, it's clear that there's nothing wrong with private debt. As with any private trade or exchange on the market, both parties to the exchange benefit, and no one loses. But suppose that the debtor is foolish, gets himself in over his head, and then finds he can't pay the loan back. This, of course, is a risk incurred by debt. And the debtor had better keep his debts down so he can surely repay. But this is not a problem of debt alone. Any consumer may spend foolishly. A man may blow his entire paycheck on an expensive tricket and then find he can't feed his family. So consumer foolishness is hardly a problem confined to debt alone. But there is one crucial difference. If a man gets in over his head and can't pay, the creditor suffers too because the debtor has failed to return the creditor's property. 
In a profound sense, the debtor, the debtor who fails to repay the $1,100 owed to the creditor has stolen property that belongs to the creditor. We have here not simply a civil debt, but a tort, an aggression against another's property. So if I get paid today and I go spend it at the horse races, think I got to triple my money and I lose everything, no one's worse for the wear except me and potentially my family. But on a creditor-debtor transaction, what happens is you have an obligation which to pay me back. If you don't pay me back, you have violated our mutually agreed upon contract. And that is a, a violation. It's an, a violence against me. You've stolen money without question. In earlier centuries, the insolvent debtor's offense was considered grave. And unless the creditor is willing to forgive the debt, the debtor continued to owe the money plus accumulating interest. Often debtors were clapped into jail until they could pay. A bit draconian, perhaps, but at least the proper spirit of enforcing property rights and defending the sanctity of contracts. The major problem with the difficulty for debtors in prison is to earn the money to repay the loan. That's what I've always wanted, huh? As early as the 17th century, however, governments began sobbing about the plight of the unfortunate debtors, ignoring the fact that the insolvent debtors had gotten themselves into their own fix. And they began to subvert their own proclaimed function of enforcing contracts. Bankruptcy's laws were passed, which increasingly let the debtors off the hook and prevented the creditors from obtaining their own property. Theft was increasingly, increasingly condoned. Improvidence was subsidized and thrift was hobbled. In fact, with a modern device of Chapter 11, instituted by the Bankruptcy Reform Act in 1978, inefficient and improvident managers and stockholders are not only let off the hook, but they often remain in positions of power, debt-free, and still running their firms and plaguing consumers and creditors with their inefficiencies. I cannot let, we got to hear this again. Because of the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 1978, inefficient and improvident managers are not only left off the hook when they file bankruptcy, but they actually remain as CEO as board of directors, as high-paid, privileged corporate executives, even after they go bankrupt, which is a plague on the consumers, never mind the other shareholders and the creditors, of course, because they're unable uh, to manage the company correctly. Modern utilitarian neoclassic economists see nothing wrong with any of this. The market, after all, adjusts to these changes in the law. It is true that the market can adjust to almost anything, but so what? Hobbling creditors means that interest rates rise permanently to the sober and honest as well as the improvident. But why should the former be taxed as subsidize the latter? This kind of goes back to actually um, auto insurance. I'll give you an example. So you see these new, uh, I don't know if it's State Farm or somebody, Liberty, maybe Progressive, I don't know. You plug this thing in your car and it tells you, it keeps track of how much you're driving and whatnot. And there's a commercial, great. So you got this uh, high linebacker guy. He's uh, he's up there in, a, in one of those new Dodge Chargers, which are just freaking awesome. Let's not let's all admit those those new version of the Dodge Chargers that have come out in the last five years are freaking beautiful cars. And anyway, this guy driving like a freaking Nissan Sentra, and this uh, linebacker comes up. He's like, "You ready? You ready? You're at the light. They're at the stoplight. He's like, "Let's go! Let's go!" And the guy's like, "No, thank you. I'm just gonna drive nicely like a grandma." And of course, because the guy uh, in the Nissan Sentra is a, a prudent driver, he should pay less than the guy over here who is an aggressive driver. The guys over here pays more, 
But what, and that's going to happen more and more. The better your driving record, the less your premium is going to be. The worse it's going to be for the aggressive. I, I'm all about that. I think it's a great tool, without question. Why should I, this guy here, the Nissan Sentra, subsidize that that clown right there who's freaking going off the light? By the way, if you want to go off the light, you don't need an ICE. You need an electric vehicle. That'll get you off the light like that. Anyway, so I think that's great. And the same thing goes with group and health insurance, and group life insurance, pensions, all that stuff. Uh, you're being subsidized to some degree because you're being all thrown as part of the same class of people. And that's that means the people who are going to live longer are subsidized by the people who die earlier in the pensions. Uh, the people who are more risk to die earlier are being subsidized by the people who live longer when it comes to life insurance. All that stuff is exactly what's happening here. Same thing. You go bankrupt. I don't. The bank looks as each, not necessarily as equal, but they have limits on how much they can charge you. So they're going to raise my fees and wish to cover their risk. Not good. All right. Uh, uh, let's see. But there are deeper problems uh, with its utilitarian attitude. Is it, the same, it is the same immoral claim from the same economists that there's nothing wrong with rising crime against residents or storekeepers of the inner cities. The market, they assert, will adjust and discount for such high crime rates. And therefore, rents and housing values will be lower in the inner city areas. So everything will be taken care of. But what sort of consolation, consolation is that? And what sort of justification for aggression and crime? Especially the fact that the people had nothing to do with the crime are the ones being hurt the most. And especially they have no escape clause. They're the ones got to sit there and suffer. So remember that. The market will adjust even with rising crime against residents and storekeepers of the inner cities. Uh, because of that, no one wants to move there other than the people who can't leave. And so the, you'll have more poor people, more crimes being committed against those poor people who are stuck. But the market adjusts itself? That's crazy. In the just society, only voluntary, voluntary forgiveness by creditors would let debtors off the hook. Otherwise, bankruptcy laws are an unjust invasion of the property rights of creditors. One myth about debtors' relief is that the debtors are habitually poor and creditors rich. So that intervening to save debtors is merely a requirement of egalitarian fairness. But this assumption was never true. In business, the wealthy, the, the wealthier the businessman, the more likely he is to be a large debtor. It's the Donald Trump and Robert Maxwell's of this world whose debt spectacularly exceeded their assets. It is a Donald Trump, I don't know who Robert Maxwell, and Robert Max's, Maxwell's of this world whose debts uh, spectacularly exceeded their assets. Intervention on behalf of debtors has generally been lobbied for by large businesses with large debts. In modern corporations, the effect of ever-tightening bankruptcy laws has been to hobble the creditor bondholders for the benefits of the stockholders and the existing managers, who are usually installed by and allied with a few dominant large stockholders. The very fact that a corporation is insolvent demonstrates that its managers have been efficient and they should be removed. Bankruptcy's laws that keep prolonging the rule of existing managers then not only invade the private property rights of the creditors, they also injure the consumers of the entire economic system by preventing the market from purging them. Not only that, in a recent law review article, Bradley and Rosenzweig have shown that the stockholders, too, as well as the creditors, have lost a significant amount of assets due to the installation of Chapter 11 in 1978. As they write, quote, If bondholders and stockholders are both losers on Chapter 11, then who are the winners? 
The winners, remarkably but not surprisingly, turn out to be the existent, existing inefficient corporate managers as well as the assorted lawyers, accountants, and financial advisors who earn huge fees from bankruptcy reorganizations. Again, it's the rich taking advantage of the middle and poor. In a free market economy that respects private property rights, the volume of private debt is self-policed by the necessity to repay the creditor, since no papa government is letting you off the hook. In addition, the interest rate a debtor may pay depends not only on the general rate of time preference, but on the degree of risk he has as a debtor poses to the creditor. A good credit risk will be a prime borrower who will pay relatively low interest. On the other hand, an improvident person or transient who has been bankrupt before will have to pay a much higher interest rate, commensurate with a degree of risk of the loan. Most people, unfortunately, apply the same analyst analysis to public debt as they do to private. If sanctity of contract should rule in the world of private debt, shouldn't they be equally a sacrosanct in public, in the public debt? Shouldn't public debt be governed by the same principles as private? The answer is no. Even though such an answer may shock the sensibilities of most people, the reason is that the two forms of debt transaction are totally different. If I borrow money from a mortgage bank, I have made a contract to transfer my money to a creditor at a future date. In a deep sense, he is a true owner of the money at that point, and if I don't pay, I am robbing him of his property. But when a government borrows money, it does not pledge its own money. Its own resources are not liable. Government commits not its own life fortune and sacred honor to repay the debt, but ours, the taxpayer. This is a horse in a transaction of a very different color. For unlike the rest of us, government sells no product, productive good or service, and therefore earns nothing. It can only get money by looting our resources through taxes or through the hidden tax of legalized counterfeiting known as inflation. There are some exceptions, of course, such as when the government sells stamps to collectors or carries our mail with gross inefficiency. <laughs> but the overwhelming bulk of government revenues is acquired through taxation or its monetary equivalent, inflation. Actually, in the days of monarchy, especially in the medieval period with the rise of the modern state, kings got the bulk of their income from their private estates, such as forest and agricultural lands. Their debt, in other words, was more private than public, and as a result, their debt amounted to next to nothing compared to the public debt that began with a flourish in the, eight, in the late 17th century. The public debt transaction then is very different than, from private debt. Instead of a low-time preference creditor exchanging money for an IOU from a high-time preference debtor, the government now receives money from creditors, both parties realizing the money will be paid back not out of the pockets or the hides of the politicians or the bureaucrats, but out of the looted wallets and purses of the hapless taxpayers. The government gets the money by tax coercion. And the public creditors, far from being innocents, know full well that their proceeds will come out of that same coercion. In short, public creditors are willing to hand over money to the government now in order to receive a share of the tax loot in the future. This is the opposite of a free market or a voluntary transaction. Both parties are immorally contracting to participate in the violation of property rights of citizens in the future. Both parties are making agreements about other people's property and both deserve the back of our hand. I, I mean, I just, I could not agree with that more. You aren't going to pay, maybe a little bit 
the Joe Biden's not going to pay. Hell, Donald Trump's not going to pay. It's going to be these people back there in generations to come. You'll pay a little bit, but we're paying a little bit for the debt that was incurred and the baby boomers and the gen- other generations. What's being tacked on now is being taken from generations yet even born. The public credit transaction is not a genuine contract that need to be considered sacrosanct any more than robbers parceling out their shares of loot in advance should be treated as some sort of sanctified contract. Any melding of public debt into a private transaction must rest on the common but absurd notion that taxation is really voluntarily voluntary and that whenever the government does anything, we are all willingly doing it. This convenient myth was wittily and trenchantly disposed of by the great economist Joseph Schumpter. The th- quote, the theory which construes taxes on the analogy of club dues or the purchase of, say, a doctor only proves how far removed this part of the social sciences from the scientific habits of mind. Morality and economic utility generally go hand in hand. Contrary to Alexander Hamilton, who spoke for a small but powerful clique of New York and Philadelphia public creditors, the national debt is not a national blessing. The annual government deficit plus the annual interest payment that keeps rising as a total debt accumulates increasingly challenges the channels scarce and precious private savings into wasteful government boondoggles, which crowd out productive investments. Established economists, including Reaganites, clearly or cleverly fudged the issue by arbitrarily lading virtually all government spending as investments. Man, that is so right. Clinton did that magically. In reality, however, government spending only qualifies as an investment in an Orwellian sense. Government actually spends on behalf of the consumer goods and desires of bureaucrats, politicians, and their dependent client groups. Remember, government actually spends on behalf of the consumer only the desires of the bureaucrats, politicians, and their dependent client group special interest. Government spending, therefore, rather than being an investment, is consumer spending of a peculiarly wasteful and unproductive sort. It is indulged not by producers, but by parasitic class as living off and increasingly weakening the productive private sector. Let me read that again. Government spending, therefore, is not an investment, is consumer spending of a peculiar, pe- peculiarly wasteful and unproductive sort. It is indulged not by the producers of the economy, but by a parasitic class living off an increasingly weakening productive private sector. Thus, we see that statistics are not in the least scientific or value-free. How data are classified, whether, for example, government spending is consumption or investment, depends on the political philosophy and the insights of the classifier, exactly. Deficits and amounting debt, therefore, are growing an intolerable burden on the society and the economy, both because they raise the tax burden and increasingly drain resources from the productive to the parasitic, counterproductive public sector. Moreover, whenever deficits are financed by expanding bank credit, in other words, creating new money, Matters will become worse since credit inflation creates permanent and rising price inflation as well as waves of boom and bust business cycles. It goes up and down. It is for all these reasons that the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians, who contrary to the myths of historians, were extraordinarily knowledgeable in economic and monetary theory, hated and reviled the public debt. 
Indeed, the national debt was paid off twice in American history, the first time by Thomas Jefferson and the second and undoubtedly the last time by Andrew Jackson. Unfortunately, paying off a national debt that will soon reach $4 trillion, again 1993, would quickly bankrupt the entire country. Think about the consequences of imposing new taxes of $4 trillion in the United States next year. Another way, and almost as devastating, a way to pay off the public debt would be to print $4 trillion of new money, either in paper dollars or by creating new bank credit. This method would be extraordinarily inflationary and prices would quickly skyrocket, ruining all groups whose earnings did not increase to the same extent and destroying the value of the dollar. In essence, this is what happens in countries that hyperinflate, as Germany did in 1923, and countless other countries, particularly in the third world, have done. If a country inflates the currency to pay off its debt, prices will rise so the dollars or the marks or the pesos the creditor receives are worth a lot less than the dollars or the pesos or the marks they originally lent out. When an American purchased a 10,000 mark German bond in 1914, it was worth $7,000. Those 10,000 marks by late 1923 would not have been worth more than a stick of bubble gum. Inflation, then, is an underhanded and terribly destructive way of indirectly repudiating the public debt. Destructive because it ruins the currency unit which individuals and businesses depend on for calculating their economic decisions. I propose, then, a seemingly drastic but actually far less destructive way of paying off the public debt at a single blow. Outright debt repudiation. Consider this question. Why should the poor, battered citizens of Russia or Poland or any other ex-commie country be bound by the debts contracted by the former, by the former commie, commie masters? It's a communist situation. The injustice is clear. The citizens struggling for freedom and for a free market economy should be taxed to pay for debts contracted by the monstrous ruling class. In the communist situation, the injustice is clear that the citizens struggling for free freedom and free markets should be held accountable to pay for the debts contracted by the monstrous former ruling class. But this injustice only differs to some degree from normal public debt. Conversely, why should the communist government of the Soviet Union have been bound by the debts contracted by the czarist government they hated and overthrew? And why should we, struggling American citizens of today, be bound by debts created by a past ruling elite who contracted these debts at our expense? One of the cogent arguments against paying blacks reparations for past slavery is that we, the living, were not slaveholders. Similarly, we, the living, did not contract for either the past or the present debts incurred by the politicians and bureaucrats in Washington. Although largely forgotten by historians and the public, repudi the public, repudiation of public debt is a solid part of the American tradition. The first wave of repudiation of state debt came during the 1840s, after the panics of 1837 and 1839. Those panics were the consequence of a massive inflationary boom fueled by the Whig-run Second Bank of the United States. Riding the wave of inflationary credit, numerous state governments, largely those run by the Whigs, floated an enormous amount of debt, most of which went into wasteful public works, uh, euphemistically called internal improvements, investments we call them now, and into the creation of inflationary banks. Outstanding public debt by state governments rose from $26 million to $170 million during the decade of the 1830s. 
Most of these securities were financed by British and Dutch investors. During the deflationary 1840s, succeeding the panics, state governments faced repayment of their debt in dollars that were now more valuable than the ones they had borrowed. Many states, now largely in democratic hands, met the crisis by repudiating these debts, either totally or partially by scaling down the amount of readjustments. Specifically, of the 28 American states in the 1840s, nine were in the glorious position of having no debt, and one, Missouri, was negligible. Of the 18 remaining, nine paid the interest on their public debt without interruption, while another nine repudiated part or all of their liabilities. Of these states that repudiated, four defaulted for several years in their interest payments, whereas the other five, he names them, totally and permanently repudiated their entire outstanding public debt. As in every debt repudiation, the result was to lift a great burden from the backs of the taxpayers in the defaulting and repudiating states. Apart from the moral sanctity of contract argument against repudiation that we've already discussed, the standard economic argument is that such a repudiation is disastrous because who in his right mind would lend again to a repudiating government? Exactly! But the effective counterargument has rarely been considered. Why would more private capital be poured down? Why should more private capital be poured down government rat holes? It is precisely the drying up of future public credit that con constitutes one of the main arguments for repudiation for means beneficially driving up a major channel for the wasteful destruction of the savings of the public. What we want is the abundant savings and investment in private enterprises in a lean, austere, low-budget, minimal government. The people in the economy can only wax fat and prosperous when the government is starved and puny. The people in the economy can only wax fat and prosperous when their government is starved and puny. The next great wave of state debt repudiation came to the South after the blight of the Northern occupation and Reconstruction had been lifted. Eight Southern states proceeded during the 1870s and early 1880s under democratic regimes to repudiate the debt foisted upon their taxpayers by the corrupt and wasteful carpet-bagging radical Republicans under Reconstruction. So what can be done now? The current federal debt is $3.5 trillion. Approximately $1.4 or 40% is owned by one or another agency of the federal government. It is ridiculous for a citizen to be taxed by one arm of the federal government, the IRS, to pay interest and principal on debt owned by another agency of the federal government. It would save the taxpayer a great deal of money and spare savings from future ways to simply cancel that debt. The alleged debt is simply an accounting fiction that provides a mask over reality and furnishes a convenient means for uh, both Bolting the I say molt, milking the taxpayer. Thus, most people think that the Social Security Administration takes their premiums and accumulates it, perhaps by sound investment, and then pays back the insured citizen when he's turned 65. Nothing can be further from the truth. There is no insurance and there is no fun, as there indeed must be in any system of private insurance. The federal government simply takes the Social Security taxes of the young, spends them in general expenditures of the treasury, and then when the person turns 65, taxes someone else to pay them. Social Security, perhaps the most revered institution in the United States, is also the single greatest racket. It's simply a giant Ponzi scheme controlled by the federal government. But this reality is masked by the Social Security Administration's ability to purchase government bonds, and then the treasury sends spending these funds on whoever it wants. But the fact that the Social Security Administration has government bonds in its portfolio and collects interest and payments from the American taxpayers allows it to manipulate 
and masquerade as a legitimate insurance business, which absolutely is not. It's a, it's a Ponzi scheme. Canceling federal agency held bonds then reduces the federal debt by 40%. I would advocate going on to repudiate, repudiate everything and let the chips fall where they may. The glorious result would be an immediate drop of $200 billion in federal expenditures. That's the interest that we're paying on the debt back then in 1993, with at least the fighting chance of equivalent cut in taxes. But if this scheme is considered too draconian, why not treat the federal government as any private bankrupt, uh, any private bankrupt is treated? The government is an organization, so why not liquidate the assets of that organization and pay the creditors, the government bondholders, a prorated share of the assets. This solution would solve the taxpayer, would cost the taxpayer nothing, and once again relieve him of $200 billion in annual interest. The U.S. government should be forced to disgorge its assets and sell them at auction and then pay off the creditors accordingly. What assets, you might ask? A great deal from the Tennessee, uh, TVA Tennessee Valley Authority to the national lands to various structures of the post office. The real estate of the post office? Oh. The massive CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia should raise a pretty penny for enough condominium housing for the entire workforce inside the Beltway. Perhaps we could eject the United Nations from the U.S., reclaim the land and buildings, and sell them for luxury housing on the east, for the east side glitterati. And I just, oh, can you imagine? Say, yeah, you're out. We're going to sell that to freaking today's version of Donald Trump. Another serendipity out of this process would be a massive privatization of the socialized land of the Western U.S. and the rest of America as well. This combination of repudiation and privatization would go a long way to reducing the tax burden, establishing fiscal soundness, and desocializing the U.S. and getting the burden off the back for our kids and grandkids. In order to go this route, however, we first need to rid ourselves of the fallacious mindset that conflates public and private and that treats government debt as if it were a productive contract between two legitimate property owners. Man, love it. A lot to go on there, man. I'm going to put links in the show notes. I just, I'd love to hear your comments if you're still there. Freaking Murray Rothbard, man. Just, I love it. Just say, yeah, we're done. Let's sell the post office. Let's sell the, oh, the first thing we do is sell the U.S. Oh, my, I mean, sell the United Nations. Can you imagine selling that? Oh, how glorious, how glorious would that be? Trump, we could put a Trump tower on there. Hell, we could say, Trump, no, we're not going to put you because you're president. We'll put a Bernie Sanders tower on there. I mean, hell, Bernie Sanders is a real estate mogul with his $3 million houses. Oh, be wonderful. I thought you might like that. Repudiate the national debt. I'm all for it. We'll see you.